We are in this stewardship series, a mini-series here that we've really focused on the beginning of this year, and um, we've already considered the stewardship of money. We've considered the broader picture of just all the things that God has given us to be stewards of those things. And as we look at our passage today, um, we're going to be asking the question, then what do I do with the stuff that I've been stewarded with? Remember last week, we had two guys who took their talents and invested them, and they um, were able to reap a yield that was pleasing to their master. And we had one who did not invest it at all, just went and buried it in the ground. And uh, today what we want to do is we want to kind of jump in and get an idea of what is it then that we do with these gifts that we have been given, um, and, and what is God doing in that whole process. And to begin with, I'd like for us to consider um, that if I were to bring two items up before you and ask you which one was fully equipped, do you think that you could select the right one? What questions would you ask? So just imagine you needed a new car, and because you're a cool dude or cool gal, you want a car that is like this, all right? It's either red or it's blue, all right? And it's a Mustang, right? Something like that, something really, I mean, you know, that's a cool car. Um, the question is, one of them is equipped and the other one is not. What would make one be more equipped than the other? What kind of things would you think about? Whoa, you guys all have it. Uh, who would like to just raise your hand? I'll point at you. How's that? All right, there you go, Chris. The V8. They come in different size engines. Is that the deal? They do. All right, so you definitely want a V8. Which one of those has the V8? You don't know. Okay, all right, but our V8, what else? A supercharged vehicle, okay. You said something about the wheels, right? Okay, nice wheels, yes. Okay, but which one is more equipped? Okay. Yeah, the one, yeah, the one that's yours, right? It, you're you're, you're going to be finding out as you go and you look at those cars and you determine, you know, one has a stereo, one doesn't, right? One's turbocharged, one isn't. Um, you know, one has air conditioning and one doesn't. I mean, yeah, those were back in the day when cars came without air conditioning, right? All right, yeah, and these, these windows roll down, by the way, you know. No, not anymore. But, but you understand what I'm saying. We, we, it's, it's not that difficult to be able to discern between two things that are very much like each other, but to determine which one is more equipped than the other, right? That's what happens when you go out shopping for a car. Let's change the analogy a little bit, and let's think about two houses. You're out, you're looking for a house, and now um, the realtor is taking you to... Um, these two houses, both of these houses are identical. And they are both going for the same price. And they're literally right across the street from each other. Now, the question is, which one is more equipped than the other? Well, the realtor, you know, says, listen, the, the house, well, one of these houses, let's say the house on the left, is a house that was owned by a person that loved to cook. And so that person in their kitchen have a, a brand new commercial refrigerator, freezer. They have a stove with a convection oven, a grill top for indoor grilling. The other house 
has a hot plate and a cooler? Which one do you think would be more equipped? You would hope so, right? Now, what about pots and pans and that kind of stuff? Well, the, the person that has the house on the left, they've got all sorts of pots and pans and, and you know, cutlery and all the special tools you need for cooking and that kind of stuff. The house on the right, they've got paper plates, plastic knives and forks, and brown paper bags. That's pretty much it. Which one is more equipped? All right, the, the one on the left. Now, you get, you get the point. It, it isn't that difficult to be able to discern which one is more equipped. Which one would you prefer? The one on the left, right? The one that has more stuff that is fuller or better equipped. Now we have a picture of three people. I'm calling these people Christians, okay? Which one of them is more equipped? How do you find out which one is more equipped? I mean, is it, is it because the guy has a tie on there, he's more equipped? I mean, ties do identify equipping power, right? Isn't that really what's going on there, all right? Or maybe it's the lady, because we know ladies, they are far more equipped than us men. We were told that a lot, apparently, right? All right? No, it's, it's a little bit more difficult when we start getting to people. Now, what if I were to bring you up here, and you were to stand in front of us, and I were to ask you, are you fully equipped, or are you just like the stripped-down version, right? You just, you know, bare bones, nothing. Which one are you? Now, you're probably thinking about yourself and thinking, oh, boy, that's, you know, I'm probably the, the lower one. That's how we usually think, right, lowest on the totem pole sort of thing. But the reality is we need to ask ourselves, what does it look like to be equipped, and then how does that take place? And what do we do with that? equipment that God has given us. And so the question I have for you right now is this. What would the answer be as you're looking at yourself? Are you equipped and are you fully equipped? And then secondly, what are you willing to do about it? Now, this is where we want to go to Scripture, Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to focus in on verses 11 and 12. Next week, we will get to the rest of the passage. I had Regina read the, the, the verses prior to that, and we'll kind of walk through some of the ideas that are there. But our focus today is going to be on verses 11 and 12. And he, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. So we've, we're in this, this series on stewardship, and we want to learn this process that God has given us so that we can be equipped. Imagine you're one of those three guys that were given these talents, and the master gave you the talent, and you're standing there saying, okay, what am I supposed to do with that? I mean, isn't that part of the struggle there in that story? What, what actually specifically am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do with the, the stuff that's been given to me in my spiritual walk? All these blessings and gifts that God has given, what am I supposed to do with it in, in a little bit more specific way? And then uh, next week, we're going to focus on what does that equipped person ultimately look like. Today, we'll look more at the process. But we want to begin with the context of this particular passage of Scripture, Ephesians 4. 11 and 12. Now, the book of Ephesians really can be divided into two parts. Chapters 1 through 3 would be doctrine. Chapters 4 through 6 would be much more application 
that is rooted in that doctrine. Now, let's just take a moment to, to look at a few uh, of the statements or things that are present for us in Ephesians chapter 4, um, 1, 2, and 3. So look in your Bibles now to Ephesians chapter 1. And Ephesians chapter 1, I mean, the bulk of Ephesians 1 is one big long sentence, okay? And it's, it's chock full of heavy, serious, important theological terms. Let's begin reading at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of the glory of, of glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood. Now, I don't know if you catch this as we're going here, but there's this repeated phrase, in him, in Jesus, in Christ, in him, all throughout here. Uh, verse 8, um, well, it's hard to pick up in here. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now look at chapter 2 and verse 10. There's more that we could say here, but I just want to highlight this. For we are his workmanship created what? In Christ Jesus. For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, so we are this workmanship, but we're created in Christ Jesus. So this goes back again to, to being in Christ and that relationship and the, the significance of, of that dynamic. Of, of it's, it's all because of Jesus, and it's all rooted in him. And ultimately, that means it's rooted in the gospel and what he's accomplished on the cross. Now look at chapter 3 and verse 20. We kind of have this building crescendo, uh, and we end up with these two verses. Verse 20, now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now remember, when these letters were written, there weren't paragraphs and there weren't verses, right? I mean, so we say, okay, this is the end of the paragraph, or this is the end of the chapter. No, there, there, there was no chapter break. But in our Bibles, we do, and it's helpful to, you know, to catalog where we're at. But just think about this, where he says, I, therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you. It's a huge, heavy, significant transition. It's a hinge in this book. We're moving from the doctrinal of this is what it means to be in Christ, and here's the reality, you are in Christ, and and, and because you're in Christ, you are his workmanship, and he's accomplishing his purposes. You were once dead, now you're alive. That's all because of being in him. But now, chapter 4 through 6 is because of that truth, here's how I want you to live. Here's what I want you to do. So look again at chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So he's saying, I want you to walk worthy. I want you to live your life. I want you to move in your Christian walk 
according to, based on, in, same, in, in reflection of the fact that you are rooted in Christ Jesus. All right? Yesterday there was a big football game, right? All right? Some of you are happy. Some of you don't care. Um, it was a big football game. Now, um, a player on the 49ers team is identified by what? How do you know if there is a 49ers player? Tell me. Has a jersey on, right? Were there any fans at that game? Did they have jerseys on? So are they all players? No. There, there are unique roles and functions for a player, but that jersey does set off the fact that they're playing. Probably the fact that they're wearing helmets too and that they are on the field, logically you conclude that these are likely the players. Now, if you have someone who is signed up to play for the 49ers, has the uniform on, has the helmet, has the cleats, they're running out to the field, they're standing there when the coin is tossed in the air, it's a logical conclusion that they actually truly play for the team, right? Now, when you get out on the field, you expect them then to play for the 49ers if that's the uniform they have on, right? The whole point here, this, this walk worthy is, if you are in Christ, that's what you're clothed with, that's what you look like, that's what you're rooted in, that's the uniform you have. You are a Christian. Now, walk in such a way that reflects that reality. And that's the practical dynamic of this particular passage. I also want you to note, though, in verse uh, chapter 4 and verse 7, um, it talks about this grace that was given to us. Every believer has received grace gifts so that they can be equipped. Notice verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So based on Christ's gift, Jesus granted gifts in measure based on what he accomplished ultimately on the cross. It's explained further here that this grace gift comes to us as spoils of victory that took place on the cross. Verse 8, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had descended into the lower regions of the earth. Here we have a picture of the victory march of a Jewish king. Okay? This victory march of this Jewish king who, um, who ultimately is coming back, and he has with him his armies. He has the recaptured captives. In other words, his own armies that have been captured who now have been freed as a result of the conquest and victory. You, know, you have the parade of the armies, the captives, also the captive enemies, and then you also have the spoils of war. And he's heading up to Mount Zion, which is Jerusalem, which is a certain place. If you've ever been there, you notice there's this, this rise. You have to ascend up to Mount Zion. So there's this, this king in procession having one victory, celebrating. It's actually a quote here from Psalm 68, verse 18. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts from men. So the picture here then is, is this victor king who receives gifts from the spoils of war, but then in turn ultimately gives them out to his people. Verse 9, in saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. 
He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Now, years ago, when I was in college, I was a lifeguard. Anyone here ever been a lifeguard? All right. Some things that lifeguards can do is they can do this. All right. I mean, they're cool people, right? Well, part of what I did as a lifeguard, I was also a trained WSI instructor, so I taught life-saving. And um, one of the things that we had to do in life-saving was, was, was gauge whether or not the students that were taking life-saving knew what they were doing. So ultimately, I had to, we had a lake that I taught it in. It wasn't a pool. Um, and it was kind of a murky lake. One of the things they had to do is they had to dive into the water. They had to find me. Now, you have to understand, in order to be found, where do I have to be? I have to descend, right, into the murk, into the mire for them to come down. And there were times when I had descended that I'm thinking, are they coming yet? And I'm hoping that they actually get a good grip on me and they pull me out properly because, you know what, my breath can only be held so long. And so there was this descending, but there was also this ascent. And the ultimate ascent is Jesus, who, by virtue of what he did on the cross, yes, he descended, but ultimately he ascended, and we have the victory that comes through him and what he has accomplished on the cross and through the resurrection. So when we talk about living our lives based on what he has done, all that's being talked about here is based on the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is ultimately the power that we have to do what he's asked us to do. Okay? So based on the fact that Jesus died on the cross and has given gifts to men, we should be good stewards of what he has given to us. But get this, being good stewards of what he's given us is not based on our ability to pull up our socks and do it ourselves. It is all based on the, the, the strength and the power that comes through the gospel. And that is hugely significant for us because there are many people that are trying to live for God in their own strength, not in the power of the gospel and not in the power of the Holy Spirit that, of course, is rooted in that gospel. Now, just setting the stage here for these two verses, right, right you know, on the heels of, of verses 9 and 10, he who has descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things, he goes right into, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Now, you know, Scripture, um, there's about five lists of gifts. And what Paul does for us here is he has, he's giving us a list of four gifted persons, get this, that are a gift to the church, and ultimately then a gift to you and to me. You get that? So we're not necessarily just laying out spiritual gifts for everyone. These are four identifiers, a list of four kinds of servants of God that have been a gift to the church and ultimately are a gift to all of us, all right? And this first section, verse 11, um, I'm going to call it teaching, and you'll understand that in just a minute, okay? So he gave the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, and you say, well, wait a second, there's five, and I'll, I'll get to that in just a minute. So first of all, he gives apostles and prophets, and 
the role of the apostles and prophets ultimately here was to lay a foundation. All right, to lay a foundation. Let's, let's look at a couple of passages of Scripture. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20. We're told here um, that, uh, that uh, the church has been built on the foundation of the apostles, chapter 2 and verse 20, and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So there's this picture here of this building, which is the church, and the foundation is what? What does it say? It's the apostles and the prophets, and um, Jesus Christ ultimately is the cornerstone. So the cornerstone is the most significant part, and then the foundation is built upon that particular cornerstone, and that cornerstone anchors that whole foundation. All right? So God uses them as this solid foundation for the church, ultimately through their preaching and teaching of God's revealed word. He also gave them signs and miracles to confirm their message. Now turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12. 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 12. Now friends, this is really important because um, there's a lot of confusion as to who these people are and the, the ultimate uh, role that they have or had and uh, do they have that role today. And, and this passage, as well as some others, will give some clarity on it, but we'll, we'll just home in here. 2 Corinthians 12, 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So these, these apostles accomplished their, their, their teaching and their preaching, and the word went forth, but, but God provided these signs and these wonders to authenticate their message. In other words, the point wasn't the sign and the wonder. The point wasn't the, wasn't the miracle. The point was the ministry of the word because that's what was important. It was the gospel going out. And the other signs here just simply authenticated it. Now, the offices and gifts um, of the apostles, therefore, were not perpetual. This is actually something that was part of the foundation of the church. This was the beginnings of the church. Uh, they died out. As, as, or I should say, as those apostles died out, as those prophets died out. And who would be a prophet that would be somewhat contemporary to Christ, and somewhat contemporary to these apostles? You think? John the Baptist, right? I mean, he, you know, during that, that ministry of Christ, and while Christ even had some of the disciples, it was after that that John the Baptist ultimately dies, the last of, of the Old Testament prophets. Of course, Jesus would be that ultimate prophet, Right? But they were the beginnings, the foundation of, of, this, of this church. Now get this, you don't lay a foundation on top of a foundation and then on top of a foundation, right? You lay a foundation. And on that foundation, you build the building. And that's the picture here. So these apostles then laid a foundation for the church. Enough on that. Secondly, we have these evangelists. These evangelists blaze a trail. Now, if I were to bring up the word evangelist in our present culture, how would people respond? If I said, hey, you know, so-and-so is a great evangelist. They happen to be on TV. How would someone actually respond to that? Is it like a positive thing? It's like, oh, wow, I want to meet that person. No, there's a really, really negative kind of connotation, attitude about this word evangelist. But friends, please hear me. This is a critically important word, and it is not a word that maybe we've actually fine-tuned well enough. It's not talking about someone who has, who has these, these mass you know, 
open-air meetings or meets in stadiums and that kind of stuff. A true evangelist here is someone who's taking the gospel to people who have not yet heard the gospel proclaimed. Now, what does that sound like? A missionary, ultimately fine-tuned, who specifically is taking the gospel to people who have not yet heard the word of God proclaimed. So this really is the word that we should use to describe that person who is doing, you might want to say, um, uh, you know, the first wave, um, first infiltration kind of role and function with the gospel. They are on the front lines taking it to, you know, in, in a raw way to people who have never heard it before. Now, friends, we need to celebrate that function. And in fact, we want to be all about raising up from our church evangelists who will go, who will take the gospel, who will blaze a trail into places that other people haven't blazed and, and see as a result of that, nations come to the gospel, come to Jesus Christ. Now, certainly it can be used to talk about someone who shares the gospel with others, but the, the, the real, you might want to say, pure way of understanding this is really the person who's going to those, those places where the gospel hasn't been, all right? It's really a beautiful gift, isn't it? What a gift it is to the church. And I tell you what, when, when, when you meet someone who has this gift, you, you, are, you are in awe of it because they have a tenacity, they have a boldness, they have a passion that maybe you don't. And it's part of it, it's their giftedness. God has, God has gifted them with this passion, this awareness, all right? Then there's this, this last group, um, that feed and mature. These are the pastor teachers. Now, there are, there are four groups here. All right? The first group would be the apostles. The second group would be the prophets. Different roles, but ultimately doing the same thing, laying the foundation. All right? um, then there's the evangelist. And then these, these last two are really one in the same. And let me explain that. That's why it's, we call it the pastor teacher. Um, there's, a, there's this word pastor, which means to shepherd. The idea is caring, protection, leadership. Um, it's, the, you know, it's the kind of person that is nudging and nurturing and prodding and, and tenderly caring for those under his care as a shepherd um, relating to his sheep. So there's that kind of idea that is there. And then there's this idea of being a teacher or a preacher, one who proclaims God's word to his people. All right? But but this is really one office, and in, 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 in the Greek language, um, there is this little Greek word called chi, and it, it means translated and, but better it is translated that is or in particular. So think of it this way. This, this office is a person who is a pastor or shepherd, but in particular that teaches, okay? So it's someone who is has this gift of oversight and care, but in particular has the function, the role of teaching, and that would be teaching the Word of God. Now, let's go to another passage of Scripture that might help us here, and that would be 1 Timothy 5.17. Fleshes it out a little bit more. All right. Now, I, I, I believe strongly in what's called the plurality of eldership. Um, we are actually, uh, in the beginnings, you'll see as you, uh, as you leave today and you pick up those those bylaws, we've established things from the perspective of being elder-led, although we're not just going to pop guys into those positions, we're going to take some time to make sure that we are preparing people for that eldership, 
Um, but ultimately, that's what leadership in the church should be. It should be a group of men who are elders. But as we find here in 1 Timothy 5.17, it says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. You get that? So you can be an elder, you can be someone who is overseeing, but there is this unique function, in particular, those who are teaching. Okay? And so um, it's, it's important here then just to kind of step back and see the point. What we've seen here is that there are apostles and prophets who lay the foundation. There's evangelists who blaze the trails. There are these pastor-teachers who feed and mature the flock. Now there's one ingredient with all of those roles and functions, all of those gifts to the church. Anyone know what that one common ingredient is? What do they all do? The common ingredient, friends, is the proclamation of God's word. It's what the apostle does, it's what the prophet does, it's what the evangelist does, it's what the pastor teacher does. This is what God has called them to do. It is to preach the word, proclaim the word, minister the word. Now friends, even in the church, sad to say, the ministry of the word, the preaching and proclamation of the word, has in many circles been set aside. Well, God wants us to praise Him and worship Him, and so we need to increase our song time so that we can have this great experience with God, and then maybe someone can come up and give us you know, a few minutes of the Word, and that's fine. And No, it's not. I'm all about praising God with song, right? We do that here. We want to do that, and we want to do it passionately. But friends, understand this. It is the ministry of God's Word through the proclamation of His Word in particular, the functions that we have right now with the pastor-teacher, that is the primary means by which God wants to equip his church. And, I, and I'm unashamed in saying that because Scripture says it. It's what God says. But we think, you know, yeah, that's too much of that and too much of that. And, you know, we want something else. Like, listen, word ministry is so critically important for the health of the church. But here's, here's where I want, to, I want you to think about this as, as it relates to equipping and being a steward of what God has given you. God is not, o- not only wants you to be equipped, but he has gifted his church with teachers of his word so that you can be equipped. So here you are. You've been given this talent or these talents. What do you do with them? You allow the ministry of the word of God to help you to be equipped with those gifts. That means you're under the word of God, the instruction of God, the counsel of God, and it comes through preaching, through teaching, through own personal Bible study, through small groups, any context where we are ministering the word and the word of God is being brought uh, to life and to bear on your gifts and your talents and those things that God has entrusted you with. That's where you want to be and that's what you want to submit yourself to. So not only does he want you to be equipped, but he has also provided this resource in this arena so that you can be equipped. Now, I understand this seems very, very self-serving. You might be thinking, Pastor Rod, you're talking about yourself, aren't you? And you're just you're setting yourself up. Listen, one of the beautiful things about this church plant is that when we began, and uh, the seven couples that were a part of this you know, initial um, core group, along with a couple of 
uh, single ladies who are part of that, all basically were saying this, Rod, your role, your function is to be pastor-teacher. We're going to take on other areas of responsibilities because we know that that is what God has called you to. The reason I'm up here has nothing to do with me being any better than anyone else. It has to do with this is a, this is a gift and a role and a function that God has called me to. And I have to be faithful to it. And God has given you gifts. And you need to nurture them and work hard at them so that you can glorify God with those resources. You get that? This is not about who's better. This is not about someone's you know, more elite because I'm standing up in front of you. It takes so many people to, to do church well. Okay? Having said that, um, we must really have a high view of the role and function of pastor-teacher and evangelist, because God does. Now, it is an exhilarating office, but it is also daunting. I mean, you, don't, you don't know the panic I go through every week because I want to get the text right, and I want to make sure that what I'm saying truly reflects what God says. I'm not sitting down saying, well, uh, what do I want to talk about today? Oh, see, let's talk about, ooh, the Niners are playing, so maybe I could like do a football analogy and maybe, who cares? You don't want to hear about the Niners, although I did bring it up. You want to go out saying, thus says the Lord, and it's been clarified for me, and I understand my life in context with that word. So now I have some marching orders. And ultimately, it's not about, well, Rod, Rod was so powerful today. Oh, did you, who cares? It's not about me. It's about him that speaks through his gifting for his glory, for his church. So to be used by God to equip the saints as a pastor is a great privilege, but get this, it is a great responsibility. The pastor teacher is to carefully guard his relationship with God, to, to, to feed God's people his word, to equip God's people to do the work of the ministry, to warn God's people of false doctrine, to rule, to oversee, to manage Christ's church. And get this, if, if this is important to God, then who do you think is going to show up? And who do you think is going to try and come and cause problem with that particular person who is ministering God's word to his flock? Let's put it this way. While God is in the business of building his own church, our adversary, the devil, is in the business of tearing it down. So he wants to get into my family and stir things up, right? He wants to get in my heart and throw distractions and, and just stir things up so that I will not be focused to do the things that I need to do your benefit. And so let me just say this, whether it's me or as we develop our elders, I'm just, I'm pleading with you, pray for this role and function. Pray for me as your pastor, for personal holiness, for, for diligence in study, for, for just making sure my priorities are right and that I'd be wise and courageous in leadership and in handling the word of God. Secondly, pray for our congregation and hear this. Not everyone else, not every believer has the same value of the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. 
They don't recognize the benefit of sitting under the word being explained, not talked about, but explained and pressed down and being convicted and having their sin exposed, not because, oh, we were able to expose it, but so that you can have resolve in Christ through forgiveness and then have life that is abundant because of the gospel. So pray for our congregation that people would really want to be taught, which of course assumes that there may be something that we don't know yet. Is there anything that you don't know yet? Be honest. Okay, thank you. There's a couple honest people. Good, good. Pray also that, that people would be would really want to be led, which assumes that there are ways we need to expand or stretch or explore or change um, the things we haven't thought of yet. Okay, so there's this, there's this role and function listed for us. The apostles and prophets, the foundation, they have died out with the beginning of the church. There are these evangelists that blaze the trail. There are these pastors and teachers that feed and mature, but they're all... They're all focusing, their, their, their giftedness is all about teaching. But that teaching isn't just kind of like standing alone. There is, there's, there's movement in this passage. There's, there's a goal ultimate that we're shooting for. And now, as we move along, I want you to notice verse 12. What is important to realize at this point um, is that there are many people who have the faulty thinking, okay, then these pastors, these elders... You know, they're, they're the ones that are supposed to be doing the work of the ministry. You wanted those positions. You sh- you're the ones that should be doing it. You, I mean, we're, we're paying you, Rod. Come on, you know, do the work. Well, yeah, but it's not like, you know, sit back and let the paid person take care of all this stuff. Or, or the people that have, who have desired the office of a bishop or an elder, they're going to do it. No, we are all together the church. We just all have different gifts, Okay. I'm not some star performer. I don't have center stage. Get this. What I'm doing today is not center stage. This is training time. This is a timeout in your week so that you can go back to your lives, which is center stage. Get that? So it's not all about me. It's all about the Word of God pressing on all of us so that we can then do what God has called us to do in the context that he has placed us. That's so important for us to understand. So be careful that you're not viewing those in leadership as somehow the ones that are supposed to be doing all the work. All right? Is parenting hard work? Yeah, it's far more center stage than what I'm doing this morning. Um, you know, being a husband or being a wife is... That is center stage. Being an employee is center stage, and you can go down the list of those things. Now, to, to, the, to the passage here, and that would be uh, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Now, how many of you grew up with the King James Version? All right? I'm going to put this passage up here in the King James, and I just want to say this, that it takes one comma to distort our view of leadership and its function. All right? And, and James Boyce really helped me out with this, and... and as, as I was thinking through this passage, it was really, really helpful for me to see this. And I look back now at my upbringing, and in particular the fact that we, we were constantly using the King James Version, which is a great translation, but it's not perfect. Okay, And punctuation is something that people added in to try and understand things. Now, let's read this particular passage, but understand that this passage now shaped 
the understanding the role and function of these apostles and prophets and evangelists and teachers. So, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Any of you guys memorized it in the King James? I mean, that's, that's how you learned it. That's how you grew up, right? Well, in, in the King James here, it gives you the idea then that the role of pastor, teacher, or evangelist of this is really threefold, that they have three responsibilities. What would those responsibilities be? For the perfecting of the saints. He gave some for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. In other words, that their role is to do all these things, perfecting the saints, the work of the ministry, the edifying of the body of Christ. But that's not how it's laid out in the Greek. There's a comma in there that shouldn't be there. And that comma that, that shouldn't be there is this. It's for the perfecting of the saints, that comma right there should not be there. And it changes everything. And that's why if you have the ESV or probably another modern translation, you don't have a comma there. Right? Do you? No. Because what's happening here is not three separate things that these people are supposed to do. They are three, they're, they're things that flow out of each other in sequence which is so different. Now let's go back to the ESV here. All right, well listen to what James Boyce says here. He says that one comma gives us the faulty impression that the, professional, uh, that, that the professionals do it all. They have the gifts, they are to use them to do all the church's work. That means that the members of the church have no other duty than of letting themselves be led and of following their pastors as a docile flock. Now look at the ESV again, or what or modern translation is probably, I'm sure, if you have it, corrected it. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. In other words, teaching to equip results in ministry, which results in building up the body of Christ. You see that? One flows out of the other. They're not three separate things that the clergy are supposed to do. So think through this. We're going to begin now with what I'm calling the who. Not the band, but the people. And who are the who? They are the saints. Not the football team, but the body of Christ. The true body of Christ. Now, all those who know the Lord. Listen, ministry is not something that a few people do. Ministry is something that everybody does. To equip the saints. So the role of pastor teacher is to equip the saints, to equip all those who are part of the body of Christ. Now there's an old adage that says, you know, 80% of, of, the, of the work in the church is done by 20% of the people, right? And if that is true, I don't think it's true in our context, but oftentimes it's a statement that's thrown out there. If that is true, that's really, really awful. And it's a wrong view and understanding of what the church is. It's also a wrong view of understanding what work in the church is, but that's a whole other discussion, right? Because your participation, for example, in a home group, just being there and interacting and, and bringing things to the table is all part of what it means to exercise your gifts in the context of the body of Christ. But coming from program-oriented churches, we wouldn't think that, okay? So this is all using your gifts and functions for the glory of God. Now, you might be saying, though, okay, that may be true, but I'm not qualified to serve Christ. I, I don't know how. Okay, well, that's why um, Paul goes on 
And he tells us how to equip the saints. What for, or he says, let me say it again here. He's teaching to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. The idea here is to equip the saints. The saints then are to be equipped. That's the word katartismos. The idea there is that which is fit, that which is restored to its original condition. It is made complete. The idea is of a bone that has been broken, that has been restored. It's been mended. Now look back at verse 8 of Ephesians 4. Ephesians, Ephesians 4, verse 8. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And just like I mentioned earlier, this is a reference to Psalm 68, and it's a victory hymn, ultimately, of, uh, that David wrote after he, uh, he conquest, uh, had conquest over a Jebusite city. And he's, he's leading these captives and ultimately these freed prisoners and the spoils of war. And the idea is because of the incarnate Christ and his coming to this earth of the man, his death, his burial, his resurrection, get this, it is now possible for people like you and me to be rescued, to be transformed, to be retrofitted, to become instruments that are useful in the hand of God. You say, well, I, I don't know how to do this. That's why there's training. That's why there's teaching. It's equipping. So you may not know exactly what to do with it. Well, then the Word of God is going to come to bear and going to begin to speak into your gifts that you have and give some light and give some instruction and give some guidance and counsel so that you can begin to develop those gifts. You don't go off to some you know, secular seminar to fashion and shape a spiritual gift. It comes by the instruction of the Word of God. And get this and make sure you can't distinguish the Holy Spirit from the Word of God. The Holy Spirit works through the Word of God to show and to develop and to, and to accomplish His purposes through that Giftedness. Now listen to 2 Peter 1 3. 2 Peter 1 3. You may want to turn there. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. The problem is that we don't know all that there is that he has given us. We need teachers. See, I'm telling you, and this is not, this is not, you know putting anyone down. You just, you don't know everything there is to know about how much you have been gifted by God. This is a lifelong pursuit. It's a lifelong process. And as you place yourself under the Word of God in its various forms of ministry, things will be alerted to you and you'll see, ah, there's this and there's this and there's this and this is what God says about it and it, and it breathes life into that gift that God has placed in you. When I was uh, fresh in ministry, I was a youth pastor in Buffalo, New York. And uh, I, we, uh, I lived in a, a parsonage, which was literally on the property of the church. It was a big three-bedroom, old kind of house. And we had a living room that had just a, a really, really nice fireplace. And so my wife and I, you know, newly married, regularly would build fires in this fireplace. How many of you like a good fire? Absolutely. Just hope you didn't do it yesterday, okay? Um, and if you did, I will talk with you. And just um, it was a spare the air day, okay? And if you didn't know that, spare me. All right. Um, but I digress, and I want to get back, just reeling it in. We were in Buffalo, and I, I just love fires. And, and I grew up in a home uh, in Michigan where we had this 
this kind of a potbelly stove fireplace. So I knew how to make a fire. I, I enjoy making the fire. You get, you know, the newspaper and the kindling, you put it all there and you build it a certain way. And it takes about maybe 15, 20 minutes to really get the thing roasting, whatever. And I'm just constantly making fires and just really, really enjoying it. And so this is about maybe two or three years of having lived there. My wife knows exactly where I'm going. She's cracking up. Living there for like two or three years, doing this regularly, just enjoying it. And I invited one of my friends over. His name happened to be Dave Van Etten. And we're like, oh, let's build a fire. And so I, I brought him, you know, in the, in the um, living room with me. And he was helping me. And I was putting all this newspaper in there, all this kind of stuff. And I'm trying to get it going. He's like, Rod, why don't you just use the gas starter? Now, you have to understand, I was completely ignorant. In fact, I was upset. I, I would think to myself, what idiot put this bar of metal in the middle of the fireplace. It's getting in the way of everything I'm trying to, to do here. And I, you know, what's it? And he said, Rod, he said, Rod, see that key sitting on the, the mantle? Yeah, I said, yeah, I've always wondered what that's for. <laughs> he said, let me show you. And he went to the side wall, went, and poof, you know, this thing, the fire kicks in. For three years, I was building fires by myself. Although I was pretty good at it, okay? Not knowing that I had this little key that just would turn and whoosh. Friends, understand this. We can go through our lives, our Christian lives, thinking that we're doing things right and thinking that we have an understanding of all the things that have been given to us when our gifts are sitting on the mantle and it takes a friend to show us they're there. Now, there's the role and function of teaching in the context of the church for equipping and for equipping of the saints. Now, ultimately here, for the equipping of the saints, number three, for what? For the work of ministry. Each saint is to be equipped for the work of service. Did you get that? Not the pastors, although we have our own responsibility. I am a saint, just another saint like you, with a unique gift, which is pastor-teacher, but... It's not just the pastors who are doing all the work of service, but it is the saints. That means you as well as me. So the question is, are you open to being equipped? Do you want to be equipped for the work of service or the work of the ministry? Now, since I have been bringing up football analogies, here's another one. Someone has said that many churches on Sunday are like going to a Super Bowl where there are 60,000 people badly in need of exercise passively watching 22 young men badly in need of rest. We're, we're all in this together. You know, there's a saying, you know, there's a saying, I think, uh, in the uh, nautical field, all hands on deck. Is that right? You know what I'm talking about? What does that mean? Stop what you're doing. Everyone do what you're supposed to be doing. We need you right now. That's the church. We all have a role. I mean, you don't have the guys doing their thing on the boat. You can tell me if I'm wrong. They're saying, uh, the captain thinks that he's the only one who's cool here. You know, he's the one who's the big shot. Everyone has a role. Everyone has a function. And without everyone taking their responsibility seriously, it's going to be trouble. Okay? Now, we have our thinking backwards. And, and, and how does equipping then take place? Well, 
First of all, you have to know Christ as your Savior. You have to be in that category of a saint. But here's just a few things to throw out there. And you know this. This is nothing new, but I just want to remind you of it. It's faithfully being in worship services where God's word is taught. Now, I want to just clarify that. Where God's word is taught, not where there is a cool message. It's a big distinction. And listen, and, and if I'm digressing as your pastor, teacher, from teaching God's word to giving you a cool message, someone come and slap me. Right? You've got to be under the word, not something that makes you feel good. It's the word of God ultimately ministered that will bring resolve to your, your crises in life and your struggles and your sin. Secondly, attending small groups or we have home groups where you can be equipped with biblical truth or practical areas of life and ministry. I don't emphasize home groups and small groups simply because I want more of you to attend and I'm upset that maybe some of you aren't. I'm just saying those are the contexts in which you are going to be able to develop those things and grow in the Word because you're interacting um, with the Word of God together with people and you're seeing and you're understanding because of your discussion how the Word of God can be taken and applied specifically to situations. Because I can't apply God's word to everyone's situation every Sunday. And if I did, you might take it personally. Right? And some of you think you are, but, you know. Third thing would be just personal study of God's word. You, you know, just having a, reg, a regular regimen of, of reading God's word and studying God's word and being in God's word. And you say, well, why? wait a second, this is just all about Intake of God's word, is that all there is to it? No, but we'll answer that in just a minute here. I think volunteering for ministry opportunities is part of that. You learn, you're equipping by, by I want to say, risking and, and trying things that maybe you hadn't discovered before. What are my gifts? Sometimes you have to step out and do something that maybe you're not super comfortable with. But you find out, you know what, I can do this. Now, this, this week, there's a few of our guys that went to what's called the Simeon Trust Conference, really a workshop. And it was really set up as a, as a workshop for pastors to, to refine their ability to understand the Word of God and see what is there and to be able to put it in, in, in a right, in, in its logical form so that it can be understood correctly in, the, in its context. And um, it's not just for pastors, it's for others who desire to be teachers and it took, you know, these, these other guys, and I tell you what, I mean, they're, they're coming, because everyone had a responsibility to be prepared for two passages of Scripture, and there was lots of fear and trepidation when it was time to report. And you know what? I appreciate the fact that there was fear and trepidation, but there was fear and trepidation in the process of doing something that may be uncomfortable so that you can grow and that you can learn. That's all part of what it means to, to stretch yourself a little bit and to, to grow and to, to, to see equipping take place. And then I think the last thing here would be allowing yourself to be trained and mentored by others who have already been serving. Um, you know, there are some times of specific training for specific things um, you know, that uh, we will probably in the, you know, in the future as things develop and grow will identify areas that maybe we really need to go. I think one of the areas is, is biblical counseling. I mean, one of my desires and goals here is that, that this church becomes a counseling church, number one, so that we can counsel one another. When, when things happen, there's trials or difficulties or there's sin, that we know how to counsel one another. We know how to care for one another from the Scripture, not therapeutically, but biblical counsel. 
And then secondly, there are people wandering all over the place looking for answers in all sorts of arenas that you may come in contact with and you have the truth, you have the answer. And knowing how to actually work with people like that because you have the truth is huge. It's a great evangelistic means to, um, to, to build the kingdom of God. So those are some really important things. Let's move from discipleship now to this last thing that I'm calling maturity because ultimately this is the goal. We've had equipping, we've had discipleship, but this, this all takes place with the goal in mind. That's what I'm saying. The goal here is not simply to come to church with your folder and take notes and say, aha, I learned something new today. The point here is that you are taking in God's truth, that it is affecting you, and it's causing you to do something with it, right? If you do something with it, the end result then is maturity. If you don't do something with it, then it's, it's stagnant, it's empty, it's just head knowledge. It's, you know, you've got a head full of pudding. You can have a lot of stuff floating around up there, but if it's not doing something, then what's the point, all right? For the building up of the body of Christ, teaching and discipling individuals helps the whole body grow up. Now, we looked at that word um, equip, karatidzo, and I would like to, to look at just a couple of places where it's used. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse um, 11, and we'll, we'll, we'll skip the Hebrews passage, but we'll look at 1 Corinthians 1.10 also. 2 Corinthians 13.11 says, Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration. There's that word. All right, so you are equipped. That's the idea. Aim for restoration. Aim for being, for being restored, being equipped. Now, uh, the passage in 1 Corinthians 1.10 I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be equipped, ketartizo, united in the same mind and the same judgment. So, so this equipping has the idea of being united, and it really is translated here more as a result. The result then of equipping, in, even in our context, in our passage, look at verse 15 of chapter 4 of Ephesians. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The word grow, the idea of... of um, of building up is this idea, really, of maturity, growing in maturity. You know, um, the analogy is used in Scripture of, of, of Christians just being children because they haven't grown up. They're not applying the things that they've been taught. That's not where God wants us to be. He wants us to be growing and building up one another. And notice this. It's not just the pastor that ultimately is the one that does it. It is the person who has the gift of teaching, who is teaching the saints for the work of the ministry, and it's the saints who are involved in ministry that ultimately, doing their ministry, do what? Build up the church. Get that? So this is, for lack of a better term, you'll get this, Reaganomics going on here. Trickle down. Leadership, preaching, teaching, that ministry of the word is going to the body, and that body then is disseminating what they're doing with, because they're equipped, and it's affecting the rest of the body. It's building up the body of Christ. It is maturing the body. 
So maturing, being built up, growing up means that we are actively learning and applying the word of God in our lives. It means that we are being obedient to what it says. It means that we are listening to God's counsel, that we're, we're heeding his warnings. Now, let's look at these two houses again, because I know you just, you're eager to buy one of them. Now, I want you to think about it a little bit. Both of these houses, you could look at as somewhat a facade. I mean, on the outside, it all looks good. These are pretty nice houses, right? But you walk into one. And as you walk in, you notice that there's holes in the sheetrock. You go to the bathroom, and you turn the faucet on, you realize there's no plumbing. You know, there's a switch on the wall, but there's no wires connected to it. There's no electricity. It hasn't been put in yet. You're trying to get upstairs, but you realize there's no stairs to get upstairs. It's all a facade, but when you get inside, you see what's really there. My friends hear this. This can be true of us, and this can be true of the church. And sometimes, let's just take the church to begin with. Sometimes as a church, we can be all about our facade. We can be all about what we are trying to appear to be like rather than what we really are. And when you get in, you see all this mess and chaos, and you see, you know, bathrooms that aren't working. You see, you know, kitchens that, are, that, that aren't even there. You, you, you see drains that are all clogged up, and you see, you know, it's just, it's, it's a mess. But on the outside, it looks good. Now, let's apply it individually, because this is, can be true for us. We do have a tendency, a natural tendency, to want to put our best foot forward, right? Naturally for us. But we can do that in such a way that we are fooling ourselves and fooling other people that things are really, you know, that we're really right with God, that we're working with God. And, you know, if we could expose the inside, we would see the sin, we would see the struggles, we would see the ways in which that you, have, you have behaved and, and recognize that it is, it is a sham about what's going on in there. Now, not, I don't want to discourage you too much. Um, but friends, hear this. I don't want you to despair. <laughs> because when you look in the mirror, oftentimes it's not pretty, is it? When you truly look inside and you see the sin that is there, you detest it, you loathe it. Don't despair. Everything that we have talked about here, remember, everything that, that we, are, we are grabbing a hold of that is moving along in this text and ultimately we will see next week is rooted in the gospel. It's rooted in Christ. It's because of Him. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And you say, how can it be for good works? Don't you see what's there? Yeah. But get this, it's paid for. All the struggles, all that sin, all that ugliness that may be there, it is paid for. But God now wants you to work on that. He wants you to be trained. He wants you to be equipped personally and allow the word of God to come and to identify areas of truth so that you can grow. And that's why it says there, I think it's verse 15, speaking the truth in love. God's word is not presented to be some kind of a weapon. It's presented maybe sometimes in a hard way to be a salve, to be an ointment, to be a help to the soul. Because you and I, when it comes down to it, we're all backbiters and hypocrites. We are. 
people say, I don't want to come to church. Bunch of hypocrites. Okay? Go to Safeway instead. You won't find them there. Because they're all at Trader Joe's, right? <laughs> no! We're, we're all, we are all struggling with sin. The reality is that if you're a child of God, that sin has been paid for. That doesn't mean, and this is sometimes a problem within the body of Christ. Well, since my sin has been paid for, I'm under grace. I don't have to worry about all this stuff. No, no, no. God's called you to mortify the flesh, to work on your own soul, to, to work on growing with the gifts that he's given you so that you can be conformed to his image. But you don't do that in your own strength. You do that in the strength that you have because of Christ. Look back at verses 9 and 10. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill what? All things. He had his reason for descending and his reason for ascending. It was a victory march, and it is by his obedience to go to that cross and to go through that trial and to go through that suffering and to to carry the weight of that sin of the world on his shoulders and ultimately then to die and to be, to be raised again. That is the basis for our ability to pursue being equipped. So you say, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do this. God has granted you the ministry of the word so that whatever he's promised you and given you, it can be equipped in you. You need the ministry of the word. You do. And I know our, even our Christian culture, much of it has abandoned the impact of the Word of God. It wouldn't say that, but by virtue of practice it has. And so we must love and value it. Now hear, hear this. I've got just a couple of minutes. I've got at least another half an hour or so. Um, that's why I want to say this just, just one more time. It's extremely important that I say the basis for true equipping and maturity in Christ is the faithful preaching and teaching of the Word of God. And I just, I just want you to develop in your heart, and maybe you already have this, a love for it. Not a love for Rod doing it, but a love for the preaching and teaching of the Word of God that truly reflects what the Word of God says being presented and pushed and applied into the lives of those who are listening, who are God's children. We cannot build one another up simply by having an emotional affection for one another. You know, if we're a church that just loves to hug one another. Anyone here get a hug today? You're going, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to raise my hand now. He's going to say, hey, listen, it's, it's perfectly right for us to be affectionate, right? But that is not the fuel that you and I need to get through the struggles that we're going through. It is what God has given us as an added framework we cannot build one another up simply by having strong social interaction together. Although scripture is very clear about ministering through hospitality and fellowship, proper fellowship, of course, is rooted in the gospel and what Christ has done. We cannot build one another up by offering psychological solutions to our struggles, failures, and desires. It doesn't come from that. We cannot build one another up simply by filling our heads with biblical truth as if more knowledge or education is the answer. Now we're commanded to study, to grow, and 
take in the word, but that just by itself is not the answer. It is applying it and being obedient to it that is what God is calling us to. And that is how we are equipped. Now listen, I know that there's a number of men that are part of this fellowship who desire to grow and develop their teaching skills. And we want to be all about helping that happen, right? And there are ladies here that desire to grow and develop and help their teaching skills. If you're a dad, if you're a husband, God has placed you in a role and a function as being a teacher to that family. You naturally have a responsibility. If you're a mom, you have a responsibility to care for your children. There's a natural built-in responsibility to teach God's word. If you are a friend, you have a natural responsibility to speak the truth in love and to care for one another as iron sharpens iron, right? But this is all of us then are, in a sense, ministers of the word of God, disseminating God's truth. There's different ways it can happen. But we need God's truth to bear in our lives. Why? Because it is, it is through that that we are equipped, and it is through that that we mature together. And so, friends, we must be about the teaching and preaching of God's word if we want to grow and if we want to be mature. If we abandon that, let's shut the doors. This is what God has called us to. And we must, we must be faithful to do it. Lord, help us today to take these truths and, Lord, to wrestle with them because our culture is questioning a lot of these things, our Christian culture in particular. But allow us, Lord, to see your from your word, your heart, your desire, and your purpose, that your word would be presented and explained and proclaimed and pressed down, and Lord, that we would, having listened to it or studied it or read it, apply it and be obedient to it, Lord, so that you can be equipping us for the work of ministry and, Lord, ultimately for the building up of the body of Christ. Lord, I just pray that Gateway Bible Church would pursue being a healthy church, a mature church, and a church that desires to be equipped for your glory. May we allow your word to be central in all we do. And Lord, then may we take the talents you've given us and, and nurture them and seek to understand them because we are being fed and, and, and um, illuminated by your word. And Lord, strengthen us now, we ask, as we wrestle and as we ponder the things that you've revealed to us today. In your precious name, amen.